Thank you so much for your support of the Graymere Preaching Workshop for 2022. You can find all of our videos, materials, and notes at graymere.com slash preaching workshop. This was our last session of the day with Bruce McClarty, who spoke to us on preaching through the book of Colossians. Uh, this was recorded February 28th, 2022. Thank you very much, Andrew. There is a, uh, a one-page handout front and back. Um, and so there are extra copies right here and on the back table back there if you didn't, if you didn't get one. Is the sound working? We're okay on all that, okay. Well, good to be with you, and I'm, I, I mean that very sincerely. This is, a, this is a great, healthy event, and I appreciate what Andrew has done, putting uh, all the effort into this, making it what it is, and I think also adding the spirit to what this is, uh, and just that there's a, there's a sense of brotherhood and fellowship, uh, and it's something that we all need. Uh, I love what you do. I admire what you do, and I have the greatest of respect for it. I spent 25 years of my life in Sunday to Sunday preaching in a local congregation, and I know something of the, uh, the challenge, how grueling that can be, uh, how it takes not just your time, but it takes your soul, and you invest all that you are in that. And I just want you to know that I, I, I admire you for what you're doing, and I thank you for what you're doing. Uh, I know what it's like as a preacher sometimes to, uh, on Sunday night, wonder, does anybody on the planet believe in what I'm doing besides me? And the preaching of the Word, sometimes we think that the church tolerates it rather than it's something that is the lifeblood of what goes on in the church. And so when you're here in a place like this, you're with people who believe passionately in what you do and in the importance of the preached word. So let's get ready for this last session today. Uh, several years ago, my, my sister who lives in uh, Ohio was telling me about a friend of hers that had gone through some great loss in her life and a lot of illness and everything, and she was really struggling. And so my sister, uh, at that time I was preaching at the college church, and my sister had some CDs of my sermons, and she said, can I just share with you some of Bruce's CDs? Maybe they're helpful or something. And a few months later, my sister was telling me, she said, that lady now thinks you are the greatest preacher she has ever heard. And try as you might, you can't keep that out of your head. You know, you're getting, you're getting a little bit, little bit puffed up and everything. And my sister, if she had been really loving, she would have stopped her story right there. But she didn't. She said, going through all that she's gone through in the last couple of years, the greatest problem that she has faced has been chronic insomnia. <laughs> That dear woman went to sleep every night of this world listening to me preach. <laughs> the greatest preacher in the world. So I love being on a, in a setting kind of like this. It's like we're getting ready to finish up, hit the road and everything. If I can't do anything else, it will be help you with a nap. And if you go to sleep, don't be embarrassed. I won't be offended. It's a gift I have from the Lord. Okay? <laughs> and so if nothing else, we will have... 
we will wrap this up today with, with a good nap. I love Colossians. I love Colossians. And my hope is that when you leave, one of the feelings you will have, I hope there are four books in the Bible that you go out of here thinking, I can't wait to preach on this. Uh, I can't wait to share this with the people uh, from Sunday to Sunday. But I love Colossians. When I was, well, it's, before I went to uh, Arkansas, I sort of had a 30-year sojourn in Arkansas, and now I'm back in, in Middle Tennessee. And when I was uh, here the first time, I met with the elders one night, and I was proposing that I preach through Philippians. And I was going to preach eight sermons going through Philippians, a series. And so I present this at an elders meeting one night, and I am met with absolute crickets, complete crickets. And finally, one of the elders said, well, I guess it's okay if you preach a series as long as no one realizes you're preaching a series. A church that had been scorched in the past with series preaching, and they wanted no part of that. When I went to Searcy, Arkansas, was working with the college church, I came into a pulpit where the people's ears had been tuned by decades of preachers preaching through books of the Bible and sometimes being able to spend a year in the Gospel of John or uh, a semester in 1 Corinthians and things like that. So when I went there, I felt like I was somewhat in heaven. Um, and I realized as I speak to people, there are folks who are working in sort of both kinds of worlds. And some of you meet resistance if you were to say, I would like to preach through Colossians or whatever. Uh, for me, at the college church, I was able to sort of organize my life according to semesters. So everything was spring semester, fall semester, uh, the summer, uh, basically summer semester. And so I thought like that. But I realize a lot of churches you're not in situations like that. And so I'm going to talk about preaching Colossians as though you are going to preach through Colossians. And I don't think you have to preach through Colossians to preach Colossians. And I think there can be individual sermons and all that, that come from this. But I'd like to introduce the idea of, of preaching Colossians by first of all talking about a little bit of the background. I, I preached a series of 24 sermons at the college church, 96 and 97. And when I was given this assignment, I went back and went through that because that was the most extensive section in my life where I worked with Colossians. The series that was titled, Christ, No More, No Less. And I think that people in the church in Searcy, if, if you were to mention Colossians, they might be able to come up with that title. And it's language from Eugene Peterson's The Message, where he says in uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense, so that we can bring every person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. Christ, no more, no less. And I believe that that points us in the direction of the heart of the Colossian letter. What's the theme? What's the message? Christ, no more, no less.
The first recipients to the saints and the faithful brothers of Christ in Colossae. Located in ancient Phrygia, from which some of the visitors on the day of Pentecost from Phrygia had been present, and it was part of the first century Roman province of Asia. I love that uh, Jeremy this morning kind of takes you through the Lycus Valley from, uh, from Ephesus, and we go that uh, 100 miles east of, of Ephesus, and you see a big pile of dirt today. Uh, that is ancient Colossae somewhere down underneath all of that. The church in Colossae seems to have been established during the ministry of Paul in Ephesus when he taught for those two years in the hall of Tyrannus. Indication is that he had not been to Colossae, but while he was there in Ephesus, the gospel radiated out all through the province of Asia. People coming to, to do business, coming to do banking, uh, maybe coming for a doctor's visit, and they're in and out of the bigger city, and then they go back home, and some of them heard the gospel of Jesus and took it back to Colossae. Had a sizable population of Jews, some two to 3,000. It was missed by the highway during the Roman Empire days and was devastated by an earthquake in A.D. 60. So somewhat out of the way, deep historic roots. Um, you know, when I, when I was... Uh, writing this down about missed by the highway, I thought Middle Tennessee. And I thought, I live in Cookville, and we're sitting right on top of, of I-40. And there are towns 20 miles away from us that have had a very different future because the highway missed them. They know what this was like. I preached for a place uh, in when I was in college, Williford, Arkansas. They got missed by two highways uh, that came through. And so you can imagine what it does to, to a town. So it's a place of significance, but it's no Ephesus. And Paul does not appear to have visited Colossae. Uh, this is, they are among the people um, where Paul has not met them face to face. Characteristics of the Colossian epistle. It can be said that Colossians is much like Ephesians, but very different. As we were talking about Ephesians uh, earlier today, uh, Mark was talking about the, the connection between the two, and they are very similar, and they are very different. And they even break down into this division of the first half and the second half. And you have the emphasis on what God has done in the first half, the first two, three chapters in Ephesians, first two chapters in Colossians, and then what we are called to do in response to that. What it means to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we've received. There are a lot of the same topics that are dealt with. And I, I think it would be a great discipline if you were teaching a, a Bible class. Or maybe if you were getting ready to prepare uh, a sermon series on Ephesians or Colossians. To you know, take a sheet of paper and divide it in half. And on one side, ways they are similar, and the second one, ways they are different. Um, Nathan, last night uh, in his sermon, uh, his introduction to the, the sermon was about why is the text from Mark that he preached on, why doesn't it appear in Matthew and Luke? And uh, just a notice that something is different here, and it's not in those others, causes us to turn a light up on it a little bit. 
and that was a great way to, to launch into the parable that we, uh, we talked about last night. As an alternative, uh, Carl Holliday says, as an alternative to the elemental spirits of the universe, language we'll mention in just a moment from chapter 2, verse 8, Colossians presents a worldview whose central focus in Christ, whose creative, uh, redemptive work has reconfigured the universe. Colossians, I think if you were to say, does, if Colossians had a gospel, I think it would be the gospel of John. You, you launch into Matthew and you immediately get into all the nitty-gritty details and the scandals and just the, uh, the, 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 the killing and uh, just the nitty-gritty of life. You get into the Gospel of John and how do you begin? In the beginning. I mean, that's about as expansive as you can get. Uh, and you're talking about the whole universe and all of time. And Colossians is more along that line. And so I think it, it gives us something that the other epistles don't. Very similar to Ephesians, and yet very different. Colossians uh, pushes us to an expansive vision to see things, each thing in relation to every other thing, and all things in relation to Jesus Christ. I love that statement. He pushes us to see each thing in relationship to every other thing and everything in relation to Christ. And then Epaphras, uh, a member of the Colossian church, was with Paul at the time of his writing, of this writing. He was deeply concerned about the problems of the Colossian church. So in terms of background, there is firsthand knowledge. There is one of them who is there and the, the coming and the going of information and all that's there. But somebody that uh, is a representative of the Colossians and somebody who's deeply concerned with what's going on in Colossae. And he's right there with Paul. And Paul talks about how that he, uh, how that he is faithful in prayer on behalf of, of the Colossians. So let's talk a bit about the Colossian heresy. And this is probably my first big exhortation to this room full of preachers. Preachers of the Colossian letter are sometimes paralyzed by the inability to determine the specifics of what is often called the Colossian heresy. What is the problem? What's going on there? Who are the false teachers? How do we define this? A lot's been said through the years about Gnostics or maybe incipient Gnosticism, or Gnostic tendencies, or, and the list goes on and on and on. But as I stand here today, to the best of my knowledge, there is nothing close to a consensus about what it is that's going on in Colossae. Now, I think for some people, that is absolutely paralyzing. I think you don't move forward. We can't know what the heresy is or what the problem is. And so how can I possibly preach on this if I haven't nailed that thing down and I'm not absolutely certain about it? I think that is a tendency for preachers and I think that may be the reason that Colossians has been neglected as much as it has. And I'll come back to that. 
I had to work that, that expression in to, to be one of the speakers today. I'll come back to that in, uh, in just a moment. The elements of the problem are obvious in the text. There are Jewish elements. There are elements of asceticism wherever that came from. There are elements that are visionary wherever they came from. And the interplay in Colossae of various thoughts, uh, I want to give credit but not blame uh, to Dr. Rick Oster for the little illustration there under letter C. And <laughs> in thinking about what influenced what in Colossae, this just makes a lot of sense to me. That we know that there were pagans there, we know there were Jews there, and what are we dealing with? And he, this simple little, simple little illustration says, before Christians even arrived, before the Christian gospel even arrived in Colossae, the pagans and the Jews were interacting with each other. They were living around each other. They were hearing each other's language. Whether they knew it or not, they were being affected by each other. So when we're talking about paganism in all of its various forms, or we're talking about Judaism in all of its various forms, that neither one of these was probably a pure form of what we might picture as either one of them. But there's probably sort of some pagan Jewishness and some Jewish paganism that's going on here. So the categories are probably not going to be clear-cut and easily defined. They're probably influencing each other long before Christianity gets there. And then the Christians get there. And the message is carried from Epaphras and others who, uh, who come to Colossae and the gospel is preached. And then the paganism begins to impact the church and the Jewish religion impacted by paganism can, impacts the church. And so we're dealing with some tendencies here that are very clear. Things that are Jewish, things that are ascetic, things that are visionary. Categories that you probably could lay over any age and any place. So while we don't know the specifics of what's going on here, I think there's a, an expression that's going to, to bring uh, very clear to us what we can say about these things. Chapter 2 and verse 8 is one of my favorites. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And we'll talk more about elemental spirits of the world. And we're going to talk about how there are all kinds of possibilities for this. But at the end of the day, do you know what I know most about that? It is not according to Christ. That's the definition. I'm not exactly sure what it was, but the way it is described is not according to Christ. There's a lot of discussion about the stoicheia. The thought on this ranges from, if you, pull up, if you open up a uh, Greek lexicon, it can mean basic components, heavenly bodies, fundamental principles. 
transcendent powers that are in control over events in the world, the ABCs, earth, wind, and fire. There are all kinds of possibilities of what this could mean. What we know most clearly about this is that they are not according to Christ. Hang on to that because that's going to be heart and soul of what the message of Colossae is going to be. Tony Ash says, It would seem that there was no intent to deny Christ, but rather to add to faith in Him. No attempt to directly attack Christ, but rather to add to faith in Him. I remember on uh, Sunday nights in my growing up, my earliest days, first, second, third grade, we, uh, we lived in Little Rock, went to the old Pulaski Heights Church, uh, Church of Christ there, and I remember uh, becoming aware of church. And I remember becoming aware of God. And when we were in church, first, second grade, I remember God being so near. I, I remember it was like I could feel the breath of God on the back of my neck uh, just as a young kid. And I, and I realized when we sing, we're singing into the ear of God. And when we pray, we're, 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 we're praying to a God who hears. And when the preacher stands up, and uh, the preacher with the booming voice and all, and he, he's bringing us a word from God. We got in the car and headed home. Oftentimes, Mom and Dad would invite somebody to come home with us uh, for uh, Shipley Donuts. So we'd stop by Shipley Donuts, pick those up, head to the house. Sunday night smelled like coffee and Shipley Donuts. It was, it was wonderful. And I remember how that if the, if the folks we invited over had kids, they'd sort of usher us off to the room where the TV was, and we'd turn on and see the last half of the wonderful world of Disney. That's Church of Christ kids in the 1960s. You saw the last half of the wonderful world of Disney. Saw the last half of the Wizard of Oz when they put it on TV, you know. I didn't know Dorothy was ever in Kansas before, you know, before videos came out. And so we sat there and we watched the wonderful world of Disney. Now, what can be more wholesome in all this world than the wonderful world of Disney? And we, we, you know, if it was a really good night, if it was a special night, you might get one of those classic old cartoons. But most nights it was a science documentary. You know, the running of the wildebeest or beneath the sea or volcanoes or something like that. And we'd sit there and we'd watch that. And I didn't realize, and I didn't have words to put with it probably for another 40 years in my life. But as a little kid, I was being subjected to worldview whiplash. I had been in a world of theism, a world where God was central, where that's the explanation of all things. And it was a place of love. And I was being pulled out of that, and I was being put in front of a TV, and Disney, wholesome Disney, is presenting me with a whole different universe, a whole different worldview, to use the statement from a moment ago, a whole different worldview. Disney never, ever criticized God. They never denied Jesus. They never spoke of Jesus. 
They never spoke of God. Now, what they were doing was giving me an alternative worldview. And I didn't even have language to know why it was so disorienting to come from church and to go to our living room and see a whole different world. I think in the Colossian context that the thing that's most disconcerting is not that Christ is being directly attacked, but it's that the implication is you need Christ plus something else. Colossian math seems to have been Christ plus asceticism is enough. Or Christ plus philosophy is enough. Or Christ plus these Jewish elements is enough. And I believe that Paul in Colossians is saying that Christ is enough. And when that's understood, it helps people deal with a disorienting world of swirling philosophies and ideas. The message of Colossians, F.F. Bruce in his commentary on Colossians says, An intelligent appreciation for the doctrine of Christ is perhaps the best safeguard against most forms of heretical teaching. I think that might ought to be written on the front cover of your Bibles. That an intelligent appreciation of the doctrine of Christ is the best safeguard against most forms of heretical teaching. I think every presentation you have heard today has pretty much emphasized that same thing. And when I think of, when I think of um, the Colossian letter, the thing that always comes to mind for me, and this may make you wonder about me, but when I think of Colossians, I think about Chuck E. Cheese whack-a-mole. That's the image for me of Colossians. Thank you for not leaving. And the idea, if you've ever been to Chuck E. Cheese and you've ever played whack-a-mole or watched kids play whack-a-mole, you stand there with this big mallet with a soft head on it, and the mole pops up, and you whack it, and it goes down. And another one over here comes up, and you whack it. And the more you whack, the faster they come. And the moles are coming up here, there, and yonder. So it's whack, 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 whack. And I believe that Colossians says, don't do that. I believe the Apostle Paul shows us an alternative to that. Instead of clearly defining every heresy that is on the streets in Colossae, there are some general things that are said. But Colossians doesn't focus on whacking each of those moles that pops its head up. Colossians, in Colossians, Paul focuses on what is the answer? What is it that's going to help the church? What is it that's going to keep your heads clear in all of this? And what is done instead of playing spiritual whack-a-mole is lifting up the preeminent Christ. Chapter 1, beginning with verse 15, in the next uh, six verses, the word all will appear eight times times. And this is, I think this is the centerpiece of Colossians. Let's talk about Christ. Whatever's going on in, uh, in Colossae, maybe we could write 
30 chapters on the specific wrongs of the things that are being said and done in Colossae. But instead of doing that, Paul you know, writes this little four-chapter letter, and in it he says this, He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation becomes even more important. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Let's stop here for just a moment. What, what do you want to talk about that is going to be spiritually distracting? Something that might, might grab us and be disorienting to us. You know, do we want to talk about things visible and invisible? Let's talk about thrones, spiritual powers, dominions or rulers or authorities. Let, let's talk about those things. Hey, I have an idea about this. I have an opinion about that. And the church gets distracted from what we're really about. Paul says, through him all things were created. All these things that you might bring up. So why do you want to talk about them? He's the one that created everything. He's the one that's over everything. He's the one that's above everything. All, 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 all. So why would you be fascinated by those things? All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might, have, he might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. It's not spiritual whack-a-mole, but instead it is lift up Christ. Lift up Christ. See Christ for all that He is. Listen to He is before all things, and through Him all things are created, and His relationship to all these principalities and powers and dominions and all of this, He's above it all. And if you see Him for who He is, everything else is a fraud. Everything else is insignificant. There is no rival. As I, th I think it was Mark maybe earlier that said, you know, that when we understand who Christ is, you, you know, it, it even makes sense out of things like the devil. The devil is not just a very bad version of God. All things, all things, all things. Now, you and I are living in a world where they're sort of like Colossae. There's something wacky that's going to come down the street every year. Every year. Had a fascinating experience uh, in my life uh, just back, back in December. We've been building a house for the last year. You've got to question the mentality of anybody that built a house in 2021. But we built a house in 2021. We got into it December the 10th. I have the most beautiful little office you have ever seen in your life. I have floor-to-ceiling bookshelves made out of walnut with a cherry stain. You will covet if you see this. <laughs> it's just, I'm, 
I, I just, I just, and when my books that have been in storage for a year, now talk about a discipline for a preacher. That's, that's a, that, that's, that would be a real experience. It was a real experience. Uh, I felt like I had my hands tied behind my back for a year. They were in storage. We got them out of storage. I spent three days putting the books on the shelves. It was one of the, I'm, I'm about to turn 65. Uh, May the 3rd, I'll be 65. So I'm at that point in life, and, and I'm, I'm taking all these books that have been a part of my life that I've read at different points, and every one you touch, you remember a season or a time or a crisis or, or I couldn't help but open and, and see who it was that gave me some of these books. There, there, were, there were tears as I went through this experience of just sort of handling my life, at least my life through books, and putting them all on the shelves. And it was interesting to me to see how that as, as, you know, through the years I tried to read what people were reading and to, to be able to, to be conversant with, sometimes to respond to the things that were out there. I remember I had one of the books, uh, was the first Harry Potter book. And I remember the very dear lady at church that came in and plopped it down on my desk and said, everybody's reading it, you need to. And I did. And I, I, I remember a counselor who was a deacon at church who would sometimes hand me a book and say, this, this is something that a lot of people in this congregation are reading. You need to read this thing. And so they're still on my, still on my shelf as well. I, I looked at books like The Da Vinci Code. Uh, and I remember when that was such a sensation. I, I looked at the books of the Left Behind series when that was an incredible sensation. There were... There were all kinds of things that, you know, I could, I could give you the year of these different things because I remember which congregation and what season in life and what all is going on and everything. And, you know, as I put those things up there at age 65 now, I'm glad I read them, but they don't mean much to me. And I don't want to spend the rest of my time, however much time God gives me, reading those kind of books or at least responding to those kind of things. I want to spend the rest of my life lifting up the message of Christ. I believe that's what lasts, and I believe that's what answers all of those things. An intelligent appreciation of the doctrine of Christ. In those verses in Colossae, if we see Him for who He is, if we hold Him up for the church for all that He is, if instead of being an afterthought or uh, just a, a side note, if He is the core of what we're saying and what we're doing, I think that's where we spend our lives. And I think you've heard that in four different ways today as we've talked about the letters of the Apostle Paul. That Paul in his writing um, is, is lifting up Christ in a compelling and magnificent way. I know that there are some people that look at Paul as being, you know, very much the legalist, you know, that, that, that in the Gospels there is all this, you know, focus on Christ, but in Paul, you know, there's focus on commandments. I think that's baloney. I think that Romans is every bit as Christ-centered as the Gospel of John. 
I, I, th I think that Philippians is as Christ-centered as the Gospel of Mark. I, I think that the, the Colossian letter, I can't imagine anything being more Christ-centered than that. We hear the, the different books, they function in different ways. But Scripture is pointing us always to Christ. And so I'd like to, uh, I'd like to sort of give you some sermon, ser sort of some sermon starter ideas. And this will be on the website or whatever uh, after, uh, after we're finished here. Um, but just some of the, the Colossian sermons that uh, for me are anchored in this very idea, Colossians as the antithesis to whack-a-mole. First one is, the greatest, last first sermon of the series was, the greatest threat to the church today. Now give that some thought. How much have you heard people talk about that recently? What is it that is the biggest threat to the church today? Um, you know, whether or not we're going to be in fellowship with each other when COVID is over. Maybe that's it, you know. Uh, but the, the, everybody has an idea of what is the biggest threat to the church today. The greatest threat to the church in any age is the tendency to make Christ anything less than everything in the life of the church or of the individual Christian. And so I think that's the place that we begin the second lesson that actually plunged into the text was the greeting. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It's all there in the greeting. There's a lot, there's a lot of abuse that goes on in Scripture when we skip over things at the, that we consider front matter and things that are the concluding things. I think you've already heard today that there's a lot of richness found in all of those words beginning to end. I'd like to think about, um, you know, the, the, the points of that lesson were Paul, Timothy, the Colossians, and Christ. They're all mentioned there in the address. And instead of just taking those as names, let's think about, as Nathan just talked about, Paul in prison and and writing uh, with not just from a particular place, but from a particular place that has shaped who he is and what it would be like at this point in life, later in life. I think uh, I, I appreciate more all the time the way we look at things differently the older we get. Um, Timothy. Timothy, who's about to face one of the great transitions of his life, a transition that I'm in the middle of right now. And that is the transition of losing your mentor. The person that you always look to and it's going to be okay because he's here. And in my experience at the college church for years and years when I would do a funeral, there would always be Neil Pryor right there with me. And I could sense, I could see it in people's faces. When we walked in, when they saw Neil Pryor, you could see that people thought, it's going to be okay. Neil knows what's going on. Bruce, not so much, but Neil knows what's going on. And I, I knew what they, how they felt about that because that's the way I felt about that man. I was a part of his funeral a few years ago. And it's, the world's a little lonelier place because I don't have that man in front of me 
that I can look to and say, I can go to him. I, I, can, I can pick up the phone and call him. I can go to his office. And the, Timothy is at that juncture in his life. He's, he's yes, a co-worker and he's a mentee of, of the Apostle Paul, but he's also someone who is about to have to step up and be frontline himself, where he's always had Paul standing in front of him. The Colossians, so much that we've talked about of, about being a, a church in the Lycus Valley and people who are dealing with confusion and, and, and what would it have been like to have gotten a letter from the Apostle Paul that's going to help in an authoritative, firm, godly way say this is healthy and this is what you need to hear. And then Christ is there in the middle of it all. Every year at, uh, at uh, Harding, I always shared with the parents uh, of incoming freshmen. Uh, got, one of my favorite speaking things every year was to get to talk to those parents because they're, they're at a really big transition in their own lives. Uh, some of them, you know, it was their first kid. Some of it was our last kid. And they were, but all of them, it was a big transition. And the family was changing because they made that trip to Searcy. And I always told them about when I was a freshman. And on Wednesday of the week that we moved in, I went to the post office and there was a letter from dad. Dad didn't write letters. Dad changed your oil. He didn't write letters. But I had a letter from dad and I thought it was probably a check to pay the bill. And I open it up and I'm with some friends in the student center and we're laughing and just having a great time and classes don't start for another couple of days. And I finally realized what dad's handwriting said. Dearest son, yesterday was the day that Hannah took Samuel to Eli. And I folded it up real fast because I wasn't going to cry in front of my friends. And I took it back to my room. And I shared that with every group of, of parents of incoming students. That has been with me my whole life since that day. Dad, Dad cast that moment through spiritual eyes. See this as something lived before God. That, that what's going on right here, right now, is something that is deeply sacred. You are standing on holy ground. And that's the, uh, as we begin the Colossian letter, uh, I think it's so healthy for a church to see these are real folks that have real hearts and hearts that are troubled and hearts that are breaking and real people that you can identify with. They're a lot like you in so many ways. The Song of Christ, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 that I just read. Verses 15 through 17, Christ and the cosmos. Verses 18 through 20, Christ and the church. Scholars think this is an early Christian hymn. At least it's poetry of some form or other, but probably a song. I love for this and also with Philippians 2. I love to introduce it with the words from Jim Croce's song, uh, I Have to Say I Love You in a Song. And I love to look out at the congregation and you can see lips move. And I know that people are confessing, I'm over 60, I'm over 60, I'm over 60. But the guy that is just from my college days, I know it's kind of late, I hope I didn't wake you. But there's something that I've just got to say. 
I know you'd understand. Every time I tried to tell you, the words just came out wrong. So I've got to say I love you in a song. I think everybody in the world can connect with, there's been a time in your life where there was a song that just absolutely crushed your heart. And I remember when I heard that song. I think for the Philippians in Philippians 2, for the Colossians in Colossians 1, I think singing a song that they already knew, something that they already embraced, but with the ability to hear it for the first time again, to hear it for the first time, I think it made a huge difference. So the song of Christ, Colossians chapter 1. The main thing, Colossians 1 verses 21 uh, through 23. I love the way, this, this is almost written like uh, a preacher wrote Paul and said, I need three points for Sunday sermon, you know. I've had a terrible week, I've had four funerals, and, and it's Saturday night. Paul, would you write, give me, give me a few verses. I think it would look like this. Verse 21, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Okay, this is the before. This is being honest about our sin problem. Verse 22, He has now reconciled in His body by flesh, by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Jesus died for us. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Once you were, but now, if you. That's a great, that's a great outline, and it contains the gospel there and what's been done for us. The main thing, keeping the main thing, the main thing, is one of the main things in life. It's that simple. Chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you, to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy as He powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. For all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I say this 
so that no one leads you away by plausible arguments. For that text, I pulled out the old story from Acres of Diamonds. Have you used that lately? You ought to dig that one out. It is classic, and most of our people have never heard that. And the story by, written by Russell Conwell about Ali Hafed, who lived on the Indus River in ancient Persia. And he was a man, rich man, had a lot of land. And he one night had a guest in his home, and they sat by the fire. And the, the person who was his guest began to tell him about these incredible gems called diamonds. And he said, if you have them, you can control the world. If you have them, you have all wealth. And as he described these in front of the fire that night, something caught fire in Ali Hafed's heart. And, and, and before long, he, he couldn't think of anything other than diamonds. And so he sells his farm and he go, leaves his family in the care of another person. And he goes off and he see, searches the world looking for diamonds. He ends up in Spain, a broken man, broken health, and he realizes he's failed in this quest and he wades out into the sea and dies. And as the story goes on, one day the man who bought his farm is down by the river that ran through the farm and watering his camels, and the camel's nose overturns a stone and something flashes in the sunlight. And he grabs it and he takes it to someone who knew about such things, and the person told him it was a diamond. And come to find out, there were acres and acres of diamonds right there. The message is undeniable. You and I sometimes have acres of diamonds beneath our feet, and we go off looking for something somewhere else. Once again, the Apostle Paul, again in this text, is saying it's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. I want you to have an appreciation for Jesus. And if you have that, you won't be led astray. And for the church to realize today as we gather here, what you need is not the next newest thing. What we all need is Jesus. And so let's do what Paul calls us to do in this letter and let's lift him up. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It's that simple. The next one is lashing ourselves to the cross. There was in Colossae, there was not a direct spiritual attack that's indicated in the letter. I think instead the problem is what we would call spiritual seduction. There are things that are calling us away. Not that people are saying Christ didn't live or that Jesus didn't die or that He is not the Son of God, but instead, oh, but have you thought about this? Or can I interest you in this? And people are spiritually seduced rather than Christ being directly attacked. I use the, uh, the image from uh, the Odyssey where they're going through um, they're on their road, road home and they go uh, by the sirens uh, in these 
uh, bird-like creatures with a beautiful voice. And uh, Odysseus knows that they that there are there are bleached out bones all over all over the sands on the beach because people have listened to those voices and they've crashed into the shore. And so he stops the ears of his men with with wax and he has himself lashed to the mast and he tells them when he begs them to let him go, you tie me with more ropes. Uh, you don't let me go. And so they uh, they sail through uh, safely. And the idea from the text in Colossians 2, verses 4 through 10, the idea is that the, um, we, are, we are lashing ourselves to the mast of Christ. The Sirens, chapter 2, verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 8. See to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Those are the voices that sing to us and that call us to our death. The mast to which we lash ourselves, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verses 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and all authority. So again, the idea of uh, sailing through a dangerous world and lashing ourselves to the cross of Christ. One of the lessons was um, in the series was what happened when you were baptized. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verses 9 through 12. What happened when you were baptized? Sometimes as preachers we'll hear from people who say, we haven't heard a lesson on baptism in a while. And in my experience, 100% of, of the time that means we haven't heard a message on why you should be baptized. Well, this is a message on why were you baptized? And what happened when you were baptized? And this is a mountaintop uh, text in Scripture. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. And when we remember what happened there, and all of these different images that Paul brings to bear on what happened at our baptism, it's like, whoa. This takes me back, and this reminds me. When I was, at, uh, when I was preaching at the college church, there was a, a member of the congregation, Lou Moore. I don't know if y'all have met him. He's, he's been the head of the counseling center at Harding for at least 150 years. <laughs> uh, he's been there long before I came as a student. He's still there today, still doing a great job. And he told me one day about working with a, a college couple that... Uh, you know, sometimes couples will come and they'll meet each other quickly and they'll get married maybe by their sophomore year and by the end of their junior year, they're through with each other. And they were in counseling with him and he was getting nowhere. Met with them repeatedly, could not get anywhere. The thaw was just, just beyond uh, what he could begin to touch. But he noticed that the young lady, every time she came in, she had this this folder in her lap and it had 
quite a few papers in it. He brought this folder and just sat there on her lap. And so finally, when Lou was just exasperated, he was getting nowhere with them, he finally just said, what have you got on your lap? And she said, oh, this is the stuff that Dwight and Barbie had us do in premarital counseling before we got married. And he said, can I look at it? And she hands it to him, and he, he begins going through it. And one of the things that Dwight and Barbie used to do with every couple is write a letter to each other and begin it with, I love you because. So he pulls this out, and Lou reads through this and everything, and then he hands the guy his letter, hands the girl her letter, and he says to the guy, would, would you just read your letter to her? And he said, I love you because, and that's as far as he got. It's as far as he got. And they both began to weep. It touched something. They remembered something. They remembered what it felt like at the beginning. And they remembered why they were crazy about each other. And that was the beginning of some really great things for them. The Apostle Paul approaches baptism much that same way, talking about what happened when we were baptized and helping a church remember. I think, I think you can start with just the physical, um, the physical moment. I mean, I, I can still feel the cinder blocks against my back as I stood there in the hallway after my baptism and all the old ladies came by and hugged me. Uh, I mean, I, I can still smell the mildew in the baptistry, which a lot of you can. Uh, you know, I remember physically. I mean, we've got a connection with that. And then for us to help people lift that up a step higher and remember what happened in heaven when that took place. And what happened before the Lord when that took place? And the day you were baptized was something incredibly, incredibly special. And so we, we help people reconnect. I love you because. And to reconnect with a most special moment in their lives. Amen. Since then, chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, I love that in Ephesians, uh, as we talked about this morning, <coughs> at least in terms of the chapter numbers, first half is about what God has accomplished for us in Christ. And the second half then is uh, now live worthy of the calling with which you, you received. Yesterday, when I spoke to the, um, the high school class, Andrew had said, I said, what, what do you want to talk to him about? And he said, something about living the Christian life every day. Uh, just being faithful in, in, in your Christian walk. And I don't know if they were old enough to realize or if they had ears to hear or not. But I went back and used Watchman Nee's little book, Sit, Walk, Stand, to give them three words. That it all begins with... God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. It all begins with what God does. And Watchman Nee makes the statement, the Christian faith does not begin with a big do. It begins with a big 
done. I don't know if 16-year-olds have ears to hear that or not, but I do know that they feel like their whole life is do this, do this, do this, don't do that, do this. And I, I wanted them to know that Scripture says the Gospel doesn't begin with a big do, it begins with a big done. And before we are called to walk in holiness, and to stand against the evil one, we are called to, first of all, be seated in the heavenlies, which is what God does and what's been done for us. And if we appreciate that, life is, is, is just very different. There's a, there's a story. When I, was, uh, when I was growing up among the preachers that I heard, easily in the top five all-time <laughs> illustrations would be this one. It was the one, the old story about the woman that married the man. They come back from their honeymoon. They're sitting at the table and he brings a piece of paper and he plops it down on the table and he says, this is what I want. And it was the list. And she laughed. Which is what most women will do when you tell this story these days. She laughed. And, and then she realized, he's serious. But it was about the way he wanted his clothes taken care of and his eggs fixed in the morning and it was a list of all these things and she she wrestled with it she wept about it eventually her heart just sort of turned cold and she went through life doing the list the man passes away a few years later she marries somebody else as opposite from that first husband as he could possibly have been this was somebody who cherished her, and someone who encouraged her, someone who affirmed her, someone who was constantly telling her just how precious she was, and someone who every time she did the least little thing would say, thank you so much. And the woman, as you can imagine, her heart sort of sprang back into full flower, and, she, and life was good. One day she was up in the attic, and she's going through a box of things and she happens to fall on the list. The list. And she just feels her whole body tense up. And she puts it back in there and folds it up. But before she could go down the steps, she makes herself go back because there was something nagging her about that list. And she goes and she opens it and she pulls it up out and she looks at it and she reads it. This time, the tears fell down her face from another realization. Everything that was on the list, she did today and loved it. But you see, it wasn't someone who didn't love her that she could never measure up to who was demanding this, 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 and this. But this was someone who was doing this in response to someone who loved her dearly. It wasn't the things that she had to do that really were so distasteful. And I tried, I don't know, if, again, I don't know if 16-year-olds have ears to hear this or not, but some people go through their whole lives resenting God because they see Him as husband number one. And they think that there's, there's no love in this relationship. They, they think that if they do all these things, maybe He will love us. And then there are some people 
And I asked them to think about the people they knew. I said, do you know someone that you feel like is just happy to be a Christian? And they smile when they talk about the faith. And they love God. The difference is that for those people, they were loved first. And we love because He first loved us. And the response is very much the letters we've been talking about today. God acts first. And I, I told, the, I told the, the students yesterday, we were working out of Ephesians, and I said, now this is the most profound thing you're going to hear. Ephesians 1 through 3 comes before Ephesians 4 through 6. I said, can you repeat that after me? Ephesians 1 through 3 comes before Ephesians, and they smile at you and they think it's silly and all, but it's profoundly important. Since then, I told uh, Dr. John Mark Hicks was here, uh, he had to leave for family responsibilities, but I told him that in, in the lesson sheet, and these were the, uh, the thing that will be made available to you, are sheets that I, that I wrote after I preached the sermons for the college home Bible studies. But I quoted him in this, um, and this, this has been all those years ago. But he said, sometimes we preachers get it backwards. We think we have to get our people in line before we can talk about God. In reality, we should begin with preaching God. Then people will fall in line. Amen. That's profoundly true. And we... We dare not reverse that process. Christianity begins not with a big uh, do, but with a big done. I'll, uh, I'll finish with this one right here. Christian living, past, present, and future. Colossians 3, verses 2 through 4. There is a present tense in verse 2 about what we are to do now. There's a past tense about what's already taken place in our baptism in verse 3. And there's a future tense about what we look forward to in Christ. And Paul uses the language of, let's fix our eyes on things above, not on things that are below. My second favorite movie of all time is called October Sky. And it's about the year that Sputnik went up and uh, the Rocket Boys in West Virginia. And Miss Riley, their math teacher, who just opened them to a bigger world than coal mines in West Virginia. And at the end of the movie, there is this poignant scene. The rocket boys have, they're going to fire off their last rocket. They've, they've gotten in trouble about this before. So this is their last one. It's been approved. It's okay. They're going to fire off their last rocket. His family uh, is, is the key character. His family is, you know, they're on board with it this time. Miss Riley's being treated for cancer in the local hospital. She's looking out the window as she sees the rocket go up. At the same time that this is going on, there are coal miners with sooty faced, soot on their faces as they're walking into the, the elevator to go down into the mine. And so you see these people who are shooting this rocket into the sky and people all over town, including Miss Riley, looking at it as these people have their eyes down, and they're headed into the mine. Things above and things below. There are two different perspectives. Those two different perspectives in life. And the Apostle Paul says, fix your eyes. 
on the things that are above. Fix your eyes on Christ. In a world that's full of confusing messages and where all kinds of distractions are out there for people and the church is always at risk of being seduced by the next sparkling thing, make sure that our people have the, have the message of Christ in their hearts and they see Him for all that Scripture says that He is so that they will not be enamored or easily led astray by the next flashy thing. As I said, I'm about to turn 65. I think a lot about my grandkids. I think a lot about the world I'll leave them into. And I, I don't, you know, I, I'm concerned. I won't say worried, but I'm concerned about what challenges are they going to face that I am not going to be there to help them face. I believe that an intelligent appreciation for the doctrine of Christ, knowing all that He is, is the best defense for anything that might come along and threaten to lead them away. And that's why I love Colossians. And I think it makes for great preaching whether they let you preach a series or not. <laughs> so, are we... Man. Questions or not? Okay. There are eight minutes. If, if any questions? Yes? What's your favorite movie of all time? Uh, <laughs> I, did, I did say that, didn't I? You said your second favorite. It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart. Uh. Yeah. I've only seen it about 35 times. I'm about to get it right. So um, that's it. Y'all have been great. Love being here with you. Amen. I believe passionately in what you're doing. Uh, may God be with you as you go forward. Thank you so much. What a quick session. Thank you all for being here. Um, I know that uh, you're going to need to get back on the road. Uh, we're going to have a, a prayer.